I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, my darling. Hello, hello. How are you doing today? Oh, so much better than Thursday. How are you, oh, Keegan? Good. <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, actually, today. You know, except for, and I should just say this off the top, I was telling you, um, my notes for this episode got somehow deleted off mm-hmm. of, of off of the Google Doc. Like, half of them got deleted. So I was, like, frantically in the last 45 minutes trying to recreate my notes. Yeah, uh, which so. is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> Right. You're like, what? You're trying to remember what you put down. And then you're also like, luckily, I listed my sources so I could go back into Mm. the articles and pull things out. Uh, But but yeah, I I was having a real chill morning up until that point. You know, I was kicking it, having coffee. Something's always got to throw a wrench in our plans, you know, just a little bit, you know, yeah, it keeps life exciting. Easy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My mom always refers to life's little mishaps as adventures. They're just little adventures, you know, it's a really lovely way of putting that. Yeah, um, we once on my first trip to the Judy Garland Museum when I was nine years old, we were on a four and a half hour detour from my cabin to Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and we were so lost. We kept seeing like moose and elk and like we were like on this road where we did not know. And so my mom just kept saying, it's an adventure, it's an adventure. So I wouldn't start like freaking out, but we made Stay it. Stay calm. I know, right? Yeah. It's just an adventure. Gosh, do you remember like the mid 2000s when everybody had those like stay calm, whatever yes. posters? Be, be calm and be calm and rage on. Wasn't that like a or really carry big on. one too? I think it was like carry be on. calm and carry on or something like that. But like, that's what you should have. It's just like, Stay calm. It's an adventure. Stay calm. It's an adventure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we are kicking off March being Women's History Month. 
And to start us off, we wanted to discuss two of probably the most well-known feminists in history, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and a little bit how their legacy is a bit distorted from some of the actual events that occurred while they were Um, while they were activists. Now, we've discussed a lot of this before. The first year of our podcast, we did an episode all about the first wave. And then last year, we did an episode about Black women and the suffrage movement. Right. And I believe we've also done an episode on women and white supremacy, which does cover some of this as well. And I do want to say just right off the top, when we talk about these things, it's complicated, right? Uh-huh. And we understand that a lot of this is within the context of a certain time period. We understand all of those things. And we are not here to try and diminish the accomplishments of these women, um, of the things that they they did do, because right. it's incredible, you know, and, and wonderful. And we completely acknowledge that. But I do think that when you're talking about history, it is important to give the full picture because I feel like we very often don't get that, especially like in school, you know, we're presented a very one sided view of historical figures very often. Exactly. Yeah, I was kind of referring to them as like the Judases of the feminist movement in my head during this research because like they really were coming into everything with the best of intentions. You know, I feel like both of them meant well for most of the time that they were, you know, working with the abolition movement and the suffrage movement. But as they started to realize that they weren't gaining the power that they wanted, they started kind of pulling away from those morals that they'd had since they were young, which I think is kind of their downfall, you know, personally. And honestly, if I'm being like completely objective trying to put myself in their shoes I understand the frustration like there is probably a certain amount of frustration and feeling like I've been advocating for people forever and I still can't get my rights right like so I understand it's from a very surface level kind of way of looking at it why why that might be but it doesn't excuse any of it, really, because no, there was a different way to go. And a lot of suffragettes went a different way. They exactly. broke from from a lot of suffragettes. Um, but I also want to say before we get going, even though I feel like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are lumped together quite frequently, uh-huh. I I have a lot more... I don't know. I feel like Susan B. Anthony is more understandable. Like whenever you're kind of like reading through her life history. Yeah. Then Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I was reading some of the stuff and I'm like, this rubs me so wrong. I agree with you and I disagree with you because I felt that way about Susan B. Anthony until I was reading more and more about her views later in life. Uh, So there is a quote that Elizabeth Cady Stanton had written or said somewhere that I have somewhere in my notes toward the end, but she said essentially that she she felt that as she gets older, she's becoming more and more progressive and she felt that Mm -hmm. Susan B. Anthony was becoming more and more conservative. I could see that. Part of um, like a Christian suffrage movement specifically and Elizabeth Cady Stanton was um an agnostic she like uh god I keep stumbling over my words she learned teachings from like transcendentalists and different types of ministers that 
taught not to teach the Bible literally, that taught, you know, that God isn't necessarily a man. So she actually had, like, religiously very different and much less conservative viewpoints as Susan B. Anthony. So for me, seeing that, that was kind of a bit of a red flag Mm -hmm. where I was like, yes, there's a lot of... The writing... Well, here's the other thing. Susan B. Anthony wasn't a writer. That wasn't her, like, main thing. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton was. She was a great speaker. She was an organizer. She could get people excited. She was very fiery. Um, But Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the writer. So if we're looking at a lot of the texts that were written... It all looks to be coming from Elizabeth because mm-hmm. she was the one that did the writing. So I, it is kind of hard to tell as well the differences in, in viewpoints and opinions when both of these women were working together, you know? Yes. Well, do you want to give an overview of their lives? I can start with um, Susan B. Anthony, and then if you want to take over with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Let's and do we that. can kind of just contribute as we Let's go do through. It. Okay, Susan B. Anthony was born on February 15th, 1820 in Adams, Massachusetts. Her father, Daniel, was a farmer and later a cotton mill owner and manager and was raised as a Quaker. Her mother, Lucy, came from a family that fought in the American Revolution and served in the Massachusetts state government. From an early age, Anthony was inspired by... Oh, wait, really quick. Can I say something uh, interesting Mm -hmm. about her parents that I read? So... Daniel was a Quaker and Lucy was actually a Methodist. Methodist, yeah. And Methodists and Quakers were not supposed to marry and they did anyway. And it was a problem for their family because I guess the father at one point had like a dance school and was like a dance instructor or something according to whatever website I got this from. Um, And he like lost his job and the community really frowned upon that marriage. And uh, so Susan kind of had this, you know, kind of radical parentage already which instilled that belief in her that it's okay to be like othered I guess yeah it's really interesting because you'll see as we move through the stories of these two women they were almost on like opposite paths and then met in the middle which kind of speaks to what you were saying in that like Katie continued or Katie Stanton continued to go more liberal while Susan B. Anthony continued to go more conservative because yeah even though her parents were religious and her father was a Quaker, which we might see as being, you know, kind of a conservative group, although they had very radical progressive they, ideas. I mean, at the time, a lot of the early suffragettes were Quakers. It was pretty yes, crazy. Yeah. But they did have, there was, um, I talked about Lucretia Mott, I think a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. she was like one of the first female uh, ministers of the Quaker religion. And so they did have some kind of like more progressive viewpoints from what I remember learning about it, but yes, yeah, still very, you know, kind of conservative dress and apparel and things like that. Much, right. much and more the belief, modest. The belief in not dancing and, yeah. and those kinds of things. But, you know, the thing that kind of made the Quaker religion or the Quaker belief to be so much more progressive than a lot of other beliefs at the time was that they did believe that everyone was equal under God. Yeah. And they didn't make exceptions for race, uh, which I think a lot of other religions <laughs> jumped through a lot of hoops yeah. in order to make those exceptions. And so um, 
this this idea really guided her throughout her early life. And in fact, a lot of her family members were abolitionists as well as temperance advocates. Um, She had a brother, Daniel, two brothers, actually, Daniel and Merritt. They moved to Kansas to support the anti-slavery movement. And then her sister, Mary, was also a women's rights advocate. So, yeah, she was a her sister. Mary was a public school teacher and worked a lot with like, you know, teachers rights and things like Mm -hmm. that, which Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton would do later on in life. So, yeah, she really did kind of come from a family of activists, activist spirits, Mm -hmm. you know, ready Mm -hmm. to kind of fight against injustice. I thought that this was a really fun fact that the B in Susan B. Anthony was not taken from her own middle name. Uh, she actually didn't have a middle name. So when she was growing up, having a middle initial was in fashion. A lot of writers, you know, had this middle initial. So she adopted the middle initial B because her namesake, her maternal grandmother, Susanna, had married a man with the last name that started with a B. So I thought that that was like just a fun, interesting fact. We know her as Susan B. Anthony. And that yeah. kind of is just something that she made up, which That's is so funny. Is neat. My yeah. parents middle gave me the middle name Francis, not just because of it being like a family name, but my dad thought that Madigan Francis would be a good pen name, and he thought that I was going to be a writer one day. So that's why I I'm agree, Madigan Francis. But I think I'm going to change my middle name when I get married. TBD. To oh, you don't know yet what you want to change it to? Oh no, it would be Elizabeth if I change it. I just don't know if I'm going to do it or not. Oh, okay. I just I don't know if I want my dad's name. I hear you. I think it's funny how parents do that. Like my mom told me that as well, where she was just like, I thought Keegan Marie was a great stage name. So that's part of why she gave me that name. She was just like, I just thought it would be, you know, it's snappy and sassy or whatever. And it's like Audrey Lord too, who like changed the spelling of her name to make it like look nicer to like how it was more pleasing to the eye for her that way and things like that. I just find it interesting how especially like these people that became like notable women, especially at this time, there is kind of a trend of like changing name in some way or having some sort of like idea at a very young age of being different and wanting to stand out in a way. I don't know. That's just what I see from that well, as well. Yeah, I think it's a way of establishing your autonomy. Yeah. Right? And saying like, I think it's a very clear public way of saying I get to choose yes. who I am and like my destiny. You know, I think it's kind of I I I love to see it. Love to see it. So when Susan B. was 16, she collected petitions against slavery as part of an organized resistance to a new law that prohibited anti-slavery petitions. Um, Her family moved to New York, Rochester, New York, and they soon fell in with a group of reformers and their farmstead soon became the gathering place for local activists, including Frederick Douglass. And during this time, she was also part of the Underground Railroad, helping enslaved people escape to freedom. This is all amazing stuff. Yeah, like it's such an important foundation for her because you can very much see that her heart was in the right place. Her parents were abolitionists. Her brothers were a- abolitionists. Yeah, and she, she wasn't did raised, do the work. Yeah, she was raised to 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 be that way. She was never raised to think any other way about different races of people. You know, it was right. always just in her and in her family to reach out and to be helpful to those in need. Right. And despite, you know, her more conservative leanings as she got older, and in fact, some of the things she said, you know, there's one very famous quote that we've said before that we will repeat later on in this episode, I'm sure. Um, 
that is pretty disparaging towards black men, especially. She maintained that friendship with Frederick Douglass her yeah. entire life. Yeah. Uh, and and his entire life. So, And it's definitely, I mean, I would love to know more of Frederick Douglass's feelings, like hurt feelings behind it, because he does stick by her a lot, even when she does not stand by him and what he stands for. So well, it is kind of, I, I'm sure that there was a feeling of, betrayal from his part yeah well I also think maybe and it's it's hard to know or say but I also think that maybe there might be a level of understanding in that between a black man and a white woman whereas like what gets lost is women of color in the middle because I feel like Frederick Douglass might be able to understand why she's but that's such a shame that he has to be the one to take the high road and to just kind of I don't know it, but is it's it the sad high that- road because it's like I feel like I feel like there's so much misogyny within black male circles that's and true. there's so much racism within white women's circles mm-hmm. that it's just like the people who are really lost here are black women yes you know like oh yeah they're the only black woman really in this story is Ida B. Wells who was completely pushed aside you know there's not a lot of and so Truth, yeah. and and Truth, who was also pushed aside. I mean, yes. I read that you know even her "Ain't I a Woman" speech was just very much a performative way for white feminists to you know pat themselves their on movement. the back, yeah, right? exactly. And say like we gave her a platform, and it's like okay, but you, then you didn't do anything, exactly. So. so it really didn't make any change for her to come up. I mean, we have this amazing speech that has lasted the test of time because it's mm-hmm. so amazing but at the time it really wasn't seen as being anything that monumental it didn't really make that many changes because they were prevented by the white suffragettes of the time yep so um the family also once they moved to rochester new york began attending the first unitarian church of rochester which was known for social reform the rochester women's rights convention was held there in 1848 although susan did not attend because she was teaching in another part of the state and this would go on to inspire the famous seneca falls convention that would follow after that i also think it's important to highlight like again she comes from a quaker and methodist background and at this point in her life She's attending a Unitarian church. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she also, uh, I read, you know, started dressing differently. She wasn't Mm -hmm. wearing her, like, Quaker clothing anymore. Um, I have it written somewhere else. Oh, here we go. She quit using words such as the and other, you know, more traditional Quaker Mm -hmm. words. She also would wear a controversial bloomer dress, which was just pantaloons worn under a knee-length dress. So she kind of, like, stepped out from this more conservative conservative image that she had growing up of being a Quaker and started to kind of branch out into I think what I see is just like a woman leaving home for the first time and discovering who she is and realizing that the beliefs of your parents don't necessarily have to be your exact beliefs and just kind of modifying things the way they make sense to her it feels very like counterculture for the like mid 1800s right where it's It's, just she's like like the rebel in mm -hmm. the rebel group already (laughs) yeah absolutely um i also thought it was interesting that susan's parents and her sister signed the declaration of sentiments at the um what was it the rochester women's rights convention in 1848 because it was inspired by the seneca falls convention they also had a copy of the declaration of sentiments 
So before Susan B. Anthony signed that, her parents and her sister had already done it. Right. Yeah. And so she kept up her interest in social work while she was working as a headmistress, but she was very distressed. She said, you know, I didn't have an interest in voting at this time, Mm -hmm. but I was very distressed about how much less I was being paid than my male counterparts. I wanted equal. I I really feel like this is probably the first time I've ever seen the words equal Equal pay pay for for equal equal work. Um, And it was actually her father who encouraged her to start advocating for women's rights, which I think is so cool yeah like, we, we love, love you daniel you. anthony that's right loving so, you loving you after leaving school she began to devote herself full-time to reform activity uh she soon found herself working with the likes of abolitionist and suffragist william lloyd garrison i learned a lot about him this week he's great he's amazing i i've read the name so many times before but i actually kind of like went to his wikipedia page and did some reading for a while and i was like i like you I wonder if the listeners would be interested in hearing um, in us doing some male feminist episodes. Because I mean, I think there would be some pretty great conversations out there for it. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, very often, of course, we focus on women when we do our fave feminist episodes. And there are so many women um, that can be highlighted and should be highlighted and often are overlooked that we don't tend to focus on male feminists. But there are some really cool ones out there. I mean, Uh, Frederick Douglass would be great. Garrison mm -hmm. would be amazing. There's so many like that. I've read about just even within this time period that would be so fascinating. To talk I about. wouldn't necessarily consider John Brown to be a feminist, but he is a fascinating figure uh, in the abolitionist movement and yeah. would love to talk more about him because his life is wild. Like he was a white guy who was straight up just like, look, we need to burn everything down <laughs> for Wait. freedom for black people. Yes, I know who you're. Sh- what what is his era? It's around the same time because her family, you know, interacted with John Brown. They disagreed or she disagreed with John Brown's belief that, like, we need to take up arms against white slaveholders, essentially. I was reading. It's all around the same time. uh, What's his name? It's Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison. Yeah, I had I've seen his name before, but until doing this episode, I hadn't seen his name come up quite so often. Well, we talked about him in the first wave episode because a lot of women really followed like it's so strange to attribute kind of like the birth of first wave feminism to a man. But um, I really feel like a lot of these women came out of the abolitionist movement and specifically from underneath the guidance of William Lloyd Garrison. They called themselves like Garrisonians. Garrisonians. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is very interesting. But at the same time, it does make sense that like, if he's using his privilege for good in some way and realizing that there's inequality for women and he wants to do something to help, to me, that's using your privilege for good. You know oh, what I absolutely. mean? Like, I think absolutely. that that's, you know, we shouldn't be giving him the credit for things. But I think at the same time, like acknowledging the fact that there was somebody in a higher position of power who could help is important. And that's not what Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did for right. the abolition yes. movement. It's, it's interesting because this is exactly what we talk about when we talk about using your privilege for good. Exactly like what you were saying is he allowed a space for women to be welcomed into this political movement where there wasn't a space before and where a lot of men 
you know, even kind of tried to push women out, even though they could be helpful just because of pure misogyny. So, um, you know, we do have to give credit where it's due in that way, because I think that a lot of women never would have gotten their start in politics or at least moved as far as they did in these like activism circles, if it weren't for people like that allowing space. Exactly. Yeah, it does. It does take. Uh, acceptance from the other side for change to be made. So the fact yeah. that he was there to help, but, you know, and then that just goes back to, you know, they were helped by a man, you know, mm-hmm. get this movement started. Yet when there is another group of people, black men and particularly black women who are mm-hmm. desperately needing your help and the way that you not just turned your back on them, but just actively have hurt their cause. Right. And said my rights first. Exactly. Right. It's devastating mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. should have led by the example that they were given. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I agree. I agree. So, um, yes, she met and started working with William Lloyd Garrison. And this is also the time where she met and started working with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yes. And it was not long before these two women were not only close friends. In fact, a lot of people said that um, Susan B. Anthony was basically like a second mother to Elizabeth Cady Stanton's children. They had kind of a Boston marriage in a way, is what I see. Uh, right. I mean, Elizabeth- who, I don't remember what a Boston marriage is. I mean, back in the day when two, there would be like two single women that would live together now elizabeth katie stanton was not single she had seven kids and a husband and a husband but susan b anthony did live with them and in all of elizabeth katie stanton's homes for the rest of her life there would be a room available for susan which is like crazy right i mean and susan b anthony never married or had children so it, it was interesting and they it was almost like even though elizabeth katie stanton was married and a lot of the things i read very often they weren't on the road, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony at the same time. So it's yeah. almost like they would trade off and then like Susan B. Anthony would like take over kind of like the woman of the house duties yeah, for Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She would be like the second mom yeah, for exactly. when Elizabeth had to go. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's really such a a great female friendship. You know, I love I love the whole like stories of Boston marriages at the time because yes, yeah, sometimes they were lesbian couples, but sometimes it was just like two women who didn't want to marry and wanted companionship and a happy life. So anytime right. that I see or people just like, just, like doing their thing. BFF. It's exactly. a BFF relationship. Like, you know, I, I and they do look again for all the problematic shit. There is some cool stuff in here. And oh, like, yeah. I love that. I love the, the way these two women you know, we're able to work together for over 50 years. Yeah, That's kind of wild. incredible. Um, but OK, let's jump into Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I do, do want to say at the top of my notes for her, I wrote the godmother of modern white feminism. And then I said I would classify Susan, at least in the early days, as more of a progressive and Elizabeth as more of like a capital L liberal. So oh, if yeah. you had to think about it, like Elizabeth is like a modern day Democrat, capital D. Yeah. And and Susan was definitely the more radical one in the beginning of their relationship. Yes. And Susan was a bit younger as well. So I feel like that could tie into it as well. And Elizabeth had different duties and a different life. So it is kind of interesting yes. how their yes. world's different collided. upbringing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth was born stupidly rich in Johnstown, New York in 1880. <laughs> 
The family mansion. I love that. (laughs) The family mansion was in the town's main square and was equipped with at least 12 servants. In her memoir, 80 Years and More, she says that there were three black men servants in her home when she was growing up, one of them being by the name of Peter Tebout. Peter turned out to actually have been enslaved by the Katie family that was freed on July 4th, 1827. According to aaregistry.org, Tebout took care of Elizabeth and her sister Margaret. She doesn't refer to Peter as an enslaved person in her memoir, but she does say she has fond memories of him. She wrote that she and her sister would attend church with him on Sundays and sit in the back with him. Okay, I'm sorry. I had to like, this is what I wrote here because I said she likes to pat herself on the back that they sat in the back of the church with their human property mm-hmm. instead of in the front with the other white people. I mean, oh, yeah. bravo. Yes. Such courage. Such courage. Like, to me, I understand that she was probably a child and didn't have a lot of control over the situation. Right. But don't write about it as though you're like, exactly. Mm, aren't I incredible for and having exactly done this thing? And that's exactly what she did, too. And the fact that she was completely leaving out the fact that he was enslaved he was not paid for his work. Like, and most likely all three of the men servants that she says that they had were probably all enslaved as well because her dad, Daniel Katie, was a slave owner. Um, he was a very conservative man and one of the wealthiest landowners in New York State. He was a member of the Federalist Party and an attorney who served a term in the U.S. Congress as well as a justice in the New York Supreme Court. Growing up, he would get Elizabeth law books to study so she could participate in debates with his law clerks at dinner to amuse them. Like, this shit pisses. It's like, oh, here, little girl, read these law books so you can amuse my company later. But then, like, she ended up actually learning from them, you know? She didn't, regardless, because her family was so loaded, she received a better education than most women in general. But... I there's so much that made my face feel like it was on fire because she said she'd go on to say that she didn't encounter any barriers because of her sex. Yep. And I'm like, OK, but that's, again, probably because of your class status. Exactly. Like you had so much money that you have the privilege to be like, I don't know. I didn't have any problems growing this up. This is and it's literally like, what I this is what I had written. Liz had a much better education than many other girls at the time because her parents had so much damn money and they only had daughters <laughs> since all of their sons died. So really. Really, this isn't that big of a deal. And her dad was like, man, I wish you were a boy. That's literally that like, too. so she was like 20 when her brother died. And she was like, dad, I'm going to try to be all the all the son that you could ever need. And this dad just <laughs> that looks at him as like, God, I wish you were a boy. And she's Looks-ever, just like, yeah, well, OK, then I'll so, do my best. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like they had all these boys that they had to like lift up. They were it's kind of it reminds me of like the Skylar sisters. Where, mm-hmm. like, you know, Angelica had to marry, like, the well-off, the wealthy, the this or the that, had to be better educated because they didn't have any sons. You know, and you're you carrying have to... that name. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's now the daughter's charge to marry well and do all that kind of stuff. So it was a very different, I think, incentive for Susan getting an education because I think a lot of times back then getting an education was or kind for of Elizabeth. like... What did I say? Susan. Susan. Oh, for Elizabeth. Yeah, because I also think that, like, Uh, For a lot of women at the time, having more of an education would mean that you could, like, handle a conversation with a man of a higher society, get married Mm -hmm. to them, things -hmm. like that. So it wasn't about having your own education and your own thoughts. It was more so just to, like, be able to hang with the higher echelon of society, you know? Yeah, there was an art to being a good conversationalist. Oh, yes, definitely. And they they taught that stuff in 
etiquette school yeah like how to how to hold a conversation and a lot of it unfortunately because we live in a patriarchal society a lot of it was to hold a man's attention uh-huh. you know definitely mm-hmm. so when she was at Johnstown Academy she was there until she was 15 she was the only girl in her advanced classes in math and languages she won second prize in the school's Greek competition and was a skilled debater so you can kind of already see like her her skills are really kind of in the the analytical and also kind of the performative. She's very, very smart. She knows how to do math. I do not. Um, mm-hmm. But she also has a way of like transferring her thoughts into really compelling speech, being such a great debater. Like you said, she says that she never felt that she was discriminated against because of her sex. Mm-hmm. In 1840, Elizabeth married Henry Brewster Stanton, a prominent abolitionist agent, which I don't know what... An, agent would be i just wrote that down because that's what it said well i think i think what they're referring to is that she met him in the home of garrett smith which was her cousin Mm -hmm. he was also a prominent abolitionist and a member of the quote secret six so speaking of john brown um this group of men were the group of men who financed john brown's raid on harper's ferry which Mm -hmm. again is a, a, a very interesting road that we can go down um but it sparked armed uprisings of enslaved African Americans uh-huh. throughout you know throughout the United States at that time so yeah. when they say agent maybe they're referring to the fact that like these men were radical like really radical like they were like we are going to arm African Americans radical and we're going to f- we're going to finance that that you makes know? sense okay that makes sense cuz i was just kind of wondering i was like okay he's an abolitionist agent but that totally makes sense so when they got married they omitted the words obey from their vows I love it. She said, Me too. <laughs> I, yeah, none of that shit. She wrote, I obstinately refuse to obey one with whom I'm supposed to be entering into an equal relation. But here's the thing. It's not actually as revolutionary at the time as we may be thinking because the Quakers had been getting rid of that part of their vows for a long, 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 long time. So she probably saw that from that religion and felt that I it imagine, meant something to her. Yeah, so she took yeah. that on. You know, like, I don't think that it's like, I just don't think that. It kind of sounds, again, like she's bragging. Yes, there is a certain amount of arrogance that I feel like exists within Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for sure. I mean, I don't want to diminish it because I do think probably of a woman of her class and like social group and religious group that it probably was seen as kind of this radical thing to omit that line. Having grown up in in a pretty evangelical household, even for us, like omitting that line would be it, it's frowned upon yeah so i mean it's cool that she did it but yes yeah i just want to make time. it known that it's not mm-hmm. like she was the first person to do this like there's For a sure. whole religion that has like we said who saw people as equals who have omitted that from their vows for a very, very long time. So while it's really cool it's not like she was the first person to ever do it this i think is so funny. On their honeymoon, they went to England in 1840, where they attended the World Anti-Slavery Convention. What a honeymoon, oh, right? What a honeymoon. So romantic. I love it. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm totally for it. Like, if I was gonna go somewhere for a honeymoon, and it just so happened that there was, like, a big event that I wanted to go to, I'd be like, well, perfect. We'll just put two and two together. We'll, yes. we'll do the event. We'll do the honeymoon. We'll do all the things. So I kind of love that, that they were like, oh, on our honeymoon, we're like, we're still working. We're still on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if I had planned my wedding at the same time as the Women's March and then they were like, hey, the Women's March is going to happen on the same day as your wedding. For sure, I would go. 
I would still go. I'd go in my wedding dress. You would go you know, in your wedding dress like, with the with the pussy hat, right? Hell yeah. yeah. I'm like, I think that that's awesome. I mean, that know? would make the day so much better. Like, I just think that's so mm-hmm. cool. They're like, oh, and then we honeymooned at an anti-slavery convention. Like, you know, I just think <laughs> the it's... The things that bind you together. Because really, that's probably a big reason why they got married. Exactly. You know, that they, they had both... those same beliefs. Exactly. So it wasn't like one was forcing the other to go. I just think that's really cool. Like, a, a yeah. couple that activists together (laughs) stays together that's not a word um elizabeth's takeaway from this was that she was appalled by the men who voted to prevent women from participating in the event even if they had been appointed delegates of their own respective abolitionist societies the women had to sit in a separate section and were hidden by curtains which she was just not here for when Garrison arrived and saw the segregation, he sat with the women. So again, we're mentioning what's his his he's got two first names and I can never William remember. William Lloyd. William Lloyd Garrison. So when he had showed up to the event and noticed the segregation, he went and sat with the women. A real one. A real one. It was at this convention that Elizabeth met Lucretia Mott, who I mentioned earlier on. Elizabeth was eager to learn from Mott as a more experienced activist. She credits this trip and her relationship with Mott as the catalyst for her focus on women's rights. So this is kind of when, you know, she started as an abolitionist. Her husband was obviously a very radical abolitionist at the time. But going to this convention and seeing the segregation and meeting Lucretia Mott started kind of building this idea of a women's women's movement for her. Mm-hmm. In her early writing, Elizabeth would compare the enslaved African Americans to that of women, even going as far to say that okay. women were more deserving of enfranchisement. Okay. Yeah. So you're starting to see you're, it. You're starting you're, to see it creeping. You're starting to see it a little bit. Like, listen, listen, Elizabeth, <laughs> honey, like, you cannot compare... You cannot compare your privileged upbringing in your four poster bed to an enslaved human being who is the property of another human being. Like that is so tone deaf and gross. It is so gross. It's so, and she's, I mean, that was kind of her main, main thing toward the end too, was just kind of like villainizing the black community and lifting up white womanhood in such a way and it really it started out very early in her writing but you know right and I that's why I called her the godmother of the modern of modern white feminism because there is this like it it feels like this oppression competition where it has to be this thing where it's just like we're as oppressed as you are and it's like no there's more nuance to that and to say that again is to completely erase and diminish the experience of people who exist at intersections like black women or like other women of color like that's it's such a weird and wild thing to say yeah it seems like they really just had their blinders on to seeing how they were being mistreated and were unable to see that maybe the way they were being mistreated was a little bit better than the way everybody else was being mistreated right you know there's there is and there is space uh-huh. to deal with all of that. It, and it's that's not how it to was say- supposed to be in the beginning. Like mm-hmm. it was these two groups, you know, right now we're talking about the women's movement kind of beginning, but they latched themselves onto the abolitionist movement because of its power and because they believed in it. And then once they got what they wanted from it, they completely abandoned it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so upsetting. Or when they felt betrayed by it because they didn't get what they wanted first. True. Because they needed to be first Uh because there was still this belief of a hierarchy that put white people first. Exactly. And so then they were insulted when black men 
got something before they got exactly. it. Exactly. You exactly. Know, so. so in 1847, the couple moved to Seneca Falls, New York. They had seven children together. And I thought this was kind of interesting. So when she gave birth, she would raise a red flag if she had a boy and a white one for a girl, which I think is funny because it's like red flag. <laughs> I got a boy. I, and the white I innocent love, flag is for a girl. <laughs> I also just love that she's flaunting the fact that she just like popped out a kid. Because yeah. I feel like it was probably controversial at the time to just be like, Yo. I feel like it, it would know? be controversial, but at the same time, like a huge accomplishment because childbirth is so was so dangerous at the time. You know what I Could mean? Feel and like, like bragging, yeah, yeah and she, if you look at it from that perspective. She or just of being like amazed that she's been able to birth seven children. I don't really know if all of her children lived into adulthood, but like most of her brothers and sisters died. So I think to her it right. probably was a pretty big deal that she was able to pop out seven. Um, it's crazy. And one of her daughters, Harriet, would one day join the women's suffrage movement as well. I love the name Harriet. I think it's, yeah. But her, her daughter's name was spelled with an O, which is very unusual. It is very. Harriet. I, I like that a lot, actually, though. H-A-R-R. It's, it's Riot. Riot. Yeah. I love, I love old people names. One of my favorite girl names is Esther, and Max hates it. I love, that's my great grandma's name. Aw, it's to, Judy played Esther twice. So that's why I love, I love it. it so much. So Elizabeth believed in a time where women were expected to give into their husband's sexual advances that women should have command over their sexual relationships and childbearing. So she was actually in control of like when they had the kids, when they had sex, all of that kind of stuff. And she even once fam- famously said of women's sex drives, a healthy woman has as much passion as a man. Right. And so historians actually do believe because of the spacing of when she had children that she must have been using some form of birth well, control, whether it was just like the calendar method. That's what they um, say. Or something like but that. But she's always said that it wasn't so much about she said that she did not use birth control from what I've read, but it was just that she decided when it was time. So mm-hmm. maybe they just didn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just didn't have sex unless... In that way, maybe. Or he pulled pulled out out. every time and they were like... (laughs) I don't know. I mean, then they got real lucky with the pull-out method. Kids wear a condom. (laughs) She enjoyed motherhood a lot and raised both of her boys and girls pretty much the same, letting them do any activities that they pleased. Uh, She wasn't very specific with them about having to fit certain gender roles, which is obviously very ahead of its time. But she was also somewhat unsatisfied with her role of being just a mother. Uh, she was depressed over the lack of intellectual companionship that she felt she had in Seneca Falls. Pfft, is what I say to that. I mean, first of all, yeah, there is, again, there's just this undercurrent of arrogance that runs throughout. But also, I feel like she, her story is so similar to Betty Friedan's story. Like, it's, it's very very similar yeah, it was it's just in a different time exactly period was stuck in the mother role felt like there should be more to life and then as right, a writer white, that wrote all upper this middle class amazing feminist literature mm-hmm. yeah that's actually mm-hmm. a really good point elizabeth katie stanton is kind of the betty Friedan, or i guess the other way around betty Friedan is kind of right. the elizabeth katie stanton of the women's mm-hmm. lib movement that's interesting i like that comparison In 1848, Lucretia Mott traveled from Pennsylvania to Seneca Falls to attend a Quaker meeting near Elizabeth's home. After the meeting with Mott's female Quaker group, they decided to organize a women's rights convention in Seneca Falls a few days later. A few days later. I think either I knew this and forgot or I did not know that it was like, hey, let's do this convention two days from now. 
is crazy to that me. That sounds exhausting. It sounds like something Listen. I would not do. But they said that because Lucretia Mott was in town, that they kind of had to like expedite the process because they didn't know when she would come back and they wanted her to be well, there and for it. Probably a lot of people were in town. It's like you got to take advantage of the fact we're talking about a time when traveling took. Yeah. How long and, and so communication and fact, plans and everything. So yeah, I mean, this many people are here right now. Yeah. So let's do and it. Mm-hmm. What makes all of this even crazier is that Stanton wrote the Declaration and Rights of Sentiments within that time, then, that would mean, right? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. A prolific writer. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Crazy. So about 300 women attended the convention, which went for two days. When it came to agreeing upon the resolutions of the Declarations of Sentiments, the Ninth was the only one to not be agreed upon unanimously. And that was, it is duty of the women of this country to secure themselves the sacred right of the elective franchise. It was actually Frederick Douglass that gave his strong support, which uh, made that, what was it called? That resolution part of the sentiments. That was a very hard sentence for me to say. Um, so We understand what you thank mean. Thank you. But if you look at the convention at Seneca Falls from an intersectional lens, it's not that grand of a historical event because the attendees were all middle and upper class white women, some white male supporters. The only black person that was there was Frederick Douglass. There was not mm-hmm. one single black woman in attendance mm-hmm. and none were even invited. So fuck you. It's an issue. It's an issue. All right, and that's that's kind of where I've got Liz and Susan meeting. So let's talk a little bit about what they did together and also a lot of the problematic stuff moving forward. Um, So Anthony and Stanton championed equality for black Americans, uh, as we've seen up until this point. Uh, They even signed a... 1864 congressional petition that pushed for the passage of the 13th Amendment, but the ratification of the 15th Amendment on February 3rd, 1870, turned the tide because it secured voting rights for men of all races, including black men, but did not extend that right to women. And famously, Susan B. Anthony, who again did not keep a lot of her own writing, she did not think of herself as a very good writer. Um, So a lot of this information comes secondhand from what people have heard or from her own writings in her personal diaries and things. Um, But there is this very famous quote that she said after the passage of the 15th Amendment that said, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ask for the ballot for the Negro and not for the woman. And um, and Anna Howard Shaw, who was the president of the National Women's Suffrage Association, argued that, quote, you have put the ballot in the hands of your black men, thus making them political superiors of white women. Never before in the history of the world have men made former slaves the political masters of their former mistresses. So white ladies were pissed. pissed. They were super pissed. pissed. And again... I, there is like I understand like you feel like you're fighting really hard and you you want you want those rights too and so well, there might and be they an initial that sting. they were going to get them after the Thirteenth Amendment was passed because they kind of put a lot of the suffrage stuff from what I read on hold for a little bit leading up to the Thirteenth Amendment being passed and really really working toward that with the intention of thinking that once the Thirteenth Amendment was passed that they would just automatically be mm-hmm. part of that and get the rights as mm-hmm. well but that wasn't true because. So I learned that there was some, you know, kind of political issues between the parties. So the Republican Party at the time was 
the Democratic Party that we know now. More liberal. Right. Mm -hmm. So just keep that in mind when I'm saying this. So the Republican Mm -hmm. Party, or I guess, which they were the union, too, in the Civil War, right? Same side? Um, Yes. Basically. So Clinton, or not Clinton. Whoa. Um, Lincoln (laughs) was a Republican. So again, I think I've said it on this podcast many times, and I have got to find the video. But there is a really good video out there. I think maybe now this or someone put it out that kind of goes through the history of how the party swapped um, ideologies. But essentially what we think of now as very capital D democratic principles um, could be applied to the Republicans of that day. And the democratic party was, more racist, exactly. generally. So the Republican mm-hmm. Party at the time were worried about giving Southern women the right to vote because they felt that it would be kind of taking away everything that they fought for with the Civil War. So that was something that I read today, this morning, that I had never heard before, that that was kind right. of part of the planning mm-hmm. as to not letting Democratic women in the South gain more power, which makes sense but i it's but i'm not okay uh, with it but like i understand what they're shitty, trying to right? do because it's yeah it's all shitty yeah so when when the 15th amendment passed white suffragists who were pissed began pushing harder for voting rights for white women to the exclusion of black native american and asian american women and part of that to go along with what you're saying as far as like republicans didn't want um essentially Democratic women, white women in the South to cancel out the black vote, white suffragists believed in using white supremacy to their advantage at this point. They decided to wield it as a weapon. So they definitely kind of appealed a lot to the Southern KKK members as well. And before we go much further, one thing that I wanted to point out, because I don't want to forget to say it, it was said, I read somewhere that Susan once said to Frederick Douglass, who has always been a major supporter of the women's movement and her personally, she said, if you will not give the whole loaf of justice to the entire people, it should be given to the most intelligent and capable portion Mm. of women Mm -hmm. first. How dare you say that to that man? Well, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that kind of goes along with what I was getting ready to say in that like white women were basically like, okay, we need to use our whiteness and weaponize our whiteness and our privilege in order to secure our right to vote at the expense of anyone else. So Bell Carney, who is a suffragist and Mississippi senator, said, quote, the enfranchisement of women would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy honestly attained for upon unquestioned authority it is stated that in every southern state but one, there are more educated women that are all then all the illiterate voters white and black native and foreign combined as you probably know of all the women in the south who can read and write 10 out of every 11 are white when it comes to the proportion of property between the races that of the white outweighs that of the black immeasurably so she's basically saying if white women were granted the right to vote the black vote would be diluted or canceled out because We're we have property, we are able to write, and we would be able to vote against the rights of of black people, essentially. So don't you want us to have the right to vote so that we can maintain white supremacy? Yeah. And I remember reading, too, that there was a lot of perpetuating the idea of, you know, the black rapist and a lot of Mm -hmm. fear mongering and tactics to be more and more afraid of black men in particular. And those are things that last till now like the the things the actions that they took during this time against the 14th and 15th amendment and against 
black Americans is still incredibly evident today. They started it. Like, it's just... Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so infuriating. And for those who want to let them off the hook because of the time or because, hey, everybody was doing it, all the all of the uh, suffragettes were doing it at this time. That's not true. And we shouldn't let them off the hook for that. So there the opposition to the 15th Amendment led to a split among white suffragettes. So. Buss reported that activists Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe and others created the American Women's Suffrage Association to explicitly endorse the 15th Amendment. And yeah, its membership and it, that was that was like a grassroots system um, that was it wasn't as, you know, high tech. I get not high tech because we're talking about organized. The, you know, 1800. It wasn't as organized mm-hmm. and it wasn't they focused more on like going state to state and ratifying the vote that way rather than just having it be like. Mm-hmm all across the country. So they had a bit of a different um, a different way of going about things. Right. And its membership included both black men and black women and made no distinctions because of race and no distinctions because of sex. Yeah. So the same way that I feel like whenever people try to excuse, um, you know, our founding fathers, quote unquote, yeah. for their participation in slavery. And I can always point and say, but you know what? There were people who, exist at the, who existed at that time who knew it was wrong and advocated against it. I can say the same thing here. There were whites suffragists at the time who knew it was wrong and said you know what rights for everybody it's it's, again it's not a pie like we want rights for you and you and you and me and and anthony and stanton could have gone that way and they They chose not to and they had the the celebrity i think at the time in that sphere and they had the the money they had the influence there they could have gone about it in another way. But they I were too hurt. Their egos were too wrapped up. Privileged and prideful. You mm-hmm. know, and they, they wanted it their way first. And they still wanted to be superior over other people. So any way you look at it, they still saw themselves as being above. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I am upset that I lost a lot of my notes, but I read this fantastic article that I will link in the show notes. It's a very long NPR article, uh, but it is specifically talking about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And the title of the article is For Stanton, All Women Were Not Created Equal. Yes, and it I, is, I read that one as well. Yeah, and it is so good. It is so well written. Um, but it basically is speaking specifically for Elizabeth Cady Stanton that her involvement in the women's rights movement was was that of prioritizing the concerns of middle class white women yeah. over others. And there's this wonderful author um, who wrote a biography about Elizabeth Cady Stanton named Lori Ginsburg. And she said, quote, she certainly claimed that she fought for the rights of all women. She fought to end the barriers that denied American citizens their rights purely on the basis of sex. And she demanded rights that not one of us would be willing to give up. I mean, she demanded in the true liberal tradition access to the mainstream American society in terms of professions, education, law, politics, property, and so on. But when she said women, I think that she primarily had in mind Women like herself, white, middle class, culturally, if not religiously Protestant, propertied, well-educated. And my disagreement with Stanton is that she came to see women like herself as more deserving of rights than other people. And yeah. I think that that's kind of... It, it ties so, in a bow. Yeah, yes, that it encapsulates what she was. Yeah. Of, and, and what a lot of these 
women in the first wave were. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah, so Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were not part of the AWSA. They were part of the National Women's Suffrage Association. And eventually there was a merger between the two groups and they became the National American Women's Suffrage Association. But before the merger, both groups got together to discuss how they would be willing to compromise. Henry Blackwell, Lucy Stone's husband, said that they were... said that they were willing to agree to avoid mixing in, quote, side issues, which means that Mm -hmm. they were willing to kind of like just focus on what the Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony side was kind of pushing for in order to make a change. So it kind of seems like they compromised a bit more of their morals in order to help the suffrage movement move forward. Um, elections for the new leaders were held with Elizabeth receiving 131 votes for president, Anthony receiving 90, and there were only two votes for other candidates. So Elizabeth became president, Susan B. was vice president, and then Lucy Stone became the chair of executive committees. But the thing is that Elizabeth wasn't really around that often. It was more of a symbolic gesture. She was traveling a lot, and she actually left the seat by 1892. Lucy Stone also passed away in 1893 and did not end up playing a major role in the NAWSA either. So that left Susan B. Anthony in charge of the group. Because of this, leadership in the group was dominated by middle and upper class white women once again, and they were not interested in fighting to defend the rights of the newly enfranchised black men in the South. From 1900 to 1904, the NAWSA began what was known as the Society Plan, which was to recruit college-educated, privileged, and politically influential members. Um, In 1903, the NAWSA officially adopted a platform of states' rights that was intended to appease the Southern suffrage groups (laughs) and bring them into the fold. One of the most well-known and obvious examples of racism from Susan B. Anthony was in 1913 at the Suffrage Parade in Washington, D.C., Ida B. Wells had organized her own group, the Alpha Suffrage Club, among women in Chicago. She was the, I believe, I've read differing things that she was among groups of other black women as well. And I've also read that she was the only black woman among white delegates from Illinois. I've read um, a bunch of things. Like, it it, it always spans. It's either like she's alone or it was a couple of people or there were quite a few yeah I'm not sure I don't know what the truth is here but in my head it was maybe a couple probably Mm -hmm. not a huge group and things like that Uh, but they arrived to be part of the march and they were told that they would have to walk in the back to be kind of unseen so that they would not be you know driving away some of the southern people that were in attendance so this did not sit well with Ida and she tried to get in the white Illinois delegation to change their mind, but they told her that they could either walk in the back or not walk at all. So she had refused to march, but as the parade progressed, she wedged herself between two white marchers, refusing to comply with the segregation. But that I love was like, Ida B. Wells. She's know, amazing. She's, she's amazing, but it's so fucked up that, like, we're... I think, yeah, it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton or was it Susan B. Anthony that was upset that it was segregated between men and women in the abolitionist group that kind of spurred her to wanting to fight Elizabeth Cady Stanton yeah Mm -hmm. and so now you are so obviously doing the exact same thing except you're not hiding them behind a curtain you're pushing them way in the back of this parade how can Mm -hmm. you not see the hypocrisy in your actions it makes no sense to me well I mean the thing with Elizabeth Cady Stanton especially and you see it throughout there's an undercurrent of it throughout this entire story is 
for as much cool shit as she did and as like interesting a person and as radical, honestly, in a lot of ways as she was, she, you feel that she's very self involved. Like I I think that a lot of her stuff is motivated by her needs. um, Well, that's why she got stuff done. You know what I mean? Like that, that need to get Mm -hmm. things for herself was strong enough that that's how she got it done. Right. And and I don't want to say that it's all wholly, wholly selfish because, you know, she was involved in anti-slavery very early on and like, and, and nobody can diminish the fact that she did those things. But when it comes down to it, I think a lot of it is very self-involved and I think we see a lot of implications of that or echoes of that even now within modern white feminism circles you know yeah I mean I think that with the idea growing up that she thought that once black men would get the right to vote or just rights in general, that that would just mean that she would too and that's why she she would have already she I think that she she regardless of both what regardless of what both her and Susan B. Anthony said with their mouths or even like a lot of their actions as being involved as early abolitionists, I think that there was probably from a cultural standpoint, this belief that was deeply ingrained in them that they could not shake, that they were superior to black people. And so I don't think they ever saw that black men would get the right to vote before them. I just don't think it was something that computed that they saw as an option so when it happened i I feel like it kind of blew them out of left field and it unfortunately revealed a lot of their true colors like it just reviewed it revealed a lot of where they really stood about things like you can talk all day about how you think that black people are equal to you but then when you see you know black men starting to get things that you don't have it kicks up this well but i'm but I'm white. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I like I don't understand. You see your true colors. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk a little bit about their falling out as they got older. Because they were friends through their lives. But as we said in the beginning, they did kind of grow apart in their ideologies as they got older, which I find very interesting. So let's chat about it. Um, as the women's movement gained more momentum, Susan began to form alliances with more conservative groups, such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which irritated Elizabeth Cady Stanton greatly. So I didn't really talk about this much, but Susan B. Anthony was a big part of the temperance movement. That was a really, like, important Her parents thing were her. as well. Her mm-hmm. parents were as well. And it's such a weird... Temperance is such a bizarre cause for me because it's essentially, like, husbands drink too much, so we can't let them drink because then... The wives can't divorce him and then they won't get the kids in the custody battle if she does. Like, it's just such well, a weird, I think twisted I, from way what of I've thinking seen, about it. From what I've seen, a lot of temperance advocates were that way because they tied alcoholism to abuse. Yes. And, and the fact that, like, men would get drunk and beat their wives. And, and then, then wives couldn't leave. They couldn't or, leave. Yeah, right. exactly. No, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. But the mm-hmm. fact that it's focused on alcohol... But the actual issue is abuse is it's just a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, it doesn't compute to us today. So, you know, it is kind of an interesting um, movement for her, in my opinion, to kind of like latch on to. But that was her thing. And Elizabeth, it was not her thing. Uh, like I said in the beginning, Elizabeth says, I get more radical as I get older while she seems to grow more conservative. 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote the Women's Bible in 1895, which attacked the use of the Bible to relegate women to inferior status. She had methodically worked her way through the Bible, quoting selected passages and commenting on them, often sarcastically. Susan refused to help Elizabeth with this book, telling her, You say women must be emancipated from their superstitions before enfranchisement will have any benefit. And I say just the reverse, that women must be enfranchised before they can be emancipated from their superstitions. And this, the idea of talking about religion specifically with Susan B. Anthony, I think brings up a topic that is a large argument in the feminist community. And we could probably talk about this a lot longer. um, But there is an idea that Susan B. Anthony was anti abortion. Mm -hmm. So there is a group called Feminists for Life. Don't go on their website. It'll make you really mad. I've been on it too many times. It was founded in 1970. um, And this woman named Rosemary Botcher, who is an anti abortion activist wrote back in June of 1989. The early feminists believed that by enhancing the status of women, they could greatly reduce the incident of abortion. Susan B. Anthony wrote that we must reach the root of evil. Two months later, Rachel McNair, the president of Feminists for Life, was quoted saying, Susan B. Anthony didn't think that there was a contradiction in the idea of being a feminist who was against abortion. Their mission statement on their website even indicates that they continue the tradition of early American feminists such as Susan B. Anthony, who opposed abortion. So the reason that so many of these people have tied this idea of Susan B. Anthony being this anti-abortion quote-unquote feminist and tying her to kind of be this like patron saint of their cause is because there was a paper that both Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony owned I think or wrote for. I didn't go too much into this but it was called The Revolution Mm -hmm. and they would post a lot of their writing and stuff and there is one There's one um, article that was anonymously signed just A, which made me think of Pretty Little Liars. I was like, wow, Pretty Little Liars started a long time ago. Um, But they were led to believe that it was Susan that said the following. Okay, but that's really a reach. It is. That's a major reach. It's a major reach. And there's there's more evidence as to why this probably isn't her. But I'm going to say this anyways, because this is one of the major quotes that these anti-abortion, quote unquote, feminists like to tie themselves to. It says, guilty? Yes. No matter what the motive, love of ease or a desire to save from suffering the unborn innocent, the woman is awfully guilty who commits the deed. It will burden her conscience in life. It will burden her soul in death. But, oh, thrice guilty is he who, for selfish gratification, heedless of her prayers, indifferent to her fate, drove her to desperation which impelled her to the crime. So, (laughs) there was a time a few years ago where there was this research project. They went through like 14,000 documents related to Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they tried to kind of compare writings and stuff to see if it was written by her. And they come, they have come to the conclusion that it probably wasn't because Susan B. Anthony usually signed her articles off SBA. And why would you make that assumption anyway? Like, A is so vague. It's like, yes, her last name started with an A, but like, I'm sure a lot of people had A in their name somewhere. And I feel like, like, especially with Susan B. Anthony, if she were to do one initial, she would do B. Don't Wait, you think? Or like even or how S. she like, chose it? 
I, I, yeah, it's, I don't know. I think that that's, it's a weird thing. I also think that someone like Susan B. Anthony, who is so outspoken about a lot of her beliefs, would just say. She would just say Like, it. If, if that's what she She would believed. have signed it SBA, like she normally did. Yeah, but the reason that I thought it was important to say it is because a lot of Christian people, a lot of religious people who claim to be feminists and things like that will use that a lot to try to argue people like us. You it's know what a, I mean? It's and it's stretch. just not true. It's, it's a stretch. It's not true. But the thing is, is that anybody can make something look legit. Like if you go on this Feminist for Life website, like it is a, a shrine to Susan B. Anthony. You know, they are, that's like their patron saint of the movement. So it is kind of interesting that, you know, there is this side of feminism that applauds her for the reasons that you and I both know of you know she was arrested for voting and she worked so hard for you know the rights to votes and things like that but then there's another group that's tying her to this very very anti-feminist mm-hmm. message it's, it's yeah. weird it's so bizarre yeah no absolutely I I Who's to say, honestly, if she didn't make any comments and signed her actual name to them about anything, I definitely wouldn't venture to guess. Yeah. About any exactly. of the things that they believed. I think it's a really weird thing to do with history to just decide. Yeah, I think somebody probably read that, saw that A, decided that that, that was what it was and just ran with it. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, 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 it's grabbing at straws to try to make an anti-abortion group be feminist. That's just all it seems like to me, that they're they're grasping at a way to claim a part of the feminist movement while being against abortion and reproductive rights. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, didn't, I didn't really go into their deaths or anything like that. Is there no, anything neither, that you want to add? Neither did I. <laughs> I didn't go into anything else. Listen, there's so much on both of these women. It's not hard to find information about either one of them they accomplished a lot of yeah. really incredible things that we didn't even get in into in I mean, this it would episode be a very long episode if we were to go through everything right did, every single know? thing they did every single award they got you know uh, what they were responsible for because it was a lot and again i want to reiterate that we're not trying to take anything away from their accomplishments because there is a lot about where we are in the women's movement, in our beliefs about feminism, both positive and negative, that come out of the accomplishments of these two women and the suffragists of the first wave. Yeah. You know, absolutely. However, because this is kind of an episode where we are... Pointing out re- the problems. Pointing out some of the flaws. Um, I want to take this little bit from... Um, there are two quotes here from that NPR article. And it says, that's why when people talk about Stanton and women's rights and her devotion to women, my first question is always, which women? What are the issues here? Which women are we talking about? Whose concerns are going to take priority? And then along the way, and this is where my disagreement with Stanton is strongest, whose rights are you going to put down in the process of demanding your own? And then she goes on to say, I think that there are modern implications to this. I mean, I think that Stanton helped create a rhetoric and a political ideology where when we say women and often when the media says women in terms of feminist goals we think about middle class white women it's never been the case that the contemporary women's movement was all white or middle class and I think it makes a really good point that 
this article specifically makes a very good point that when talking about women's issues or women's rights, we are likely, be, largely because of women like Susan B. Anthony and Katie Stanton, we are likely to conjure up an image of a middle-class white woman. Yeah. And when talking about black civil rights, we are likely to conjure up an image of a black man. And where right. does that leave black women or women of color? Where does that leave them? You I mean, know? yeah. And that's why it's so important to not only highlight Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and a lot of the white women at this time, but to talk about the lesser known people that were doing it the right way and just mm-hmm. weren't able to get their goals accomplished because they were being pushed back by other people that had more power than them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. Um, and it's sad that, you know, I think the reason that a lot of people don't attach themselves to feminism is because of this idea of it being a space for middle class white people, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, and not yeah. having it be a space for everybody. So it's unfortunate that that started way back in the 1800s and it's something that we're still trying to fight today. But that's why it's so important that we have to discuss other stories, other people so that we can have a more comprehensive idea of what history is so that young girls boys and otherwise growing up in the next generation and so on and so forth see that there is a place for them in all of these different movements and wherever they feel drawn to there's a place for them you know thank god for intersectionality all right well i hope that you all enjoyed the episode today learned a little i bit did more. i did too i definitely learned more about these women we've talked about them so much and i've known that they were problematic but actually knowing more about their writing and things like that is fascinating um Gosh, well, we are going to be celebrating Women's History Month for the rest of the month of March. So look forward to that. We're going to kind of be focusing on the first wave a little bit and getting into that a little bit more since we kind of did an overview of all of the waves when we first started the show. We thought it'd be kind of fun to dig into the nitty gritty of each of those waves as we move forward. So yeah. If there's anything that you would like for us to discuss in the news, if you want to reach out to us about what you want to hear from us on Patreon or what kind of merch you'd like, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Y. A. N. F podcast we have a facebook business and group page go ahead to the group and chat with the other listeners then go to the business page and if you haven't already leave a review and then when you're done there you can go over to apple Podcasts and leave a review there if you haven't done that already and it makes us super happy when you do so i think that's it yeah all right that's all with all of that being said we encourage you to to rage on. on bye bye Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.